Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. Thanks for joining us for part two of What Masons Do. And as with the previous episode, this focus is from the May-June 2020 issue of California Freemason Magazine, which is titled The Eye of the Storm, How Masons Offer Relief in the Midst of Crisis. So uh, let's go ahead and start with the next article here, which is called Afterburn. In the wake of an all-consuming megafire, California Masons showed that relief isn't just an ideal, it's a way of life, by Lindsay J. Smith. On the morning of November 8, 2018, Bill Richards was up with the sun. Around 7 a.m. as he was feeding the chickens on his ranch home in Paradise, he saw smoke rising beyond his back fence. Like many towns throughout California, Paradise in Butte County was no stranger to fires. A series of blazes a decade prior had destroyed a few hundred homes in the area, and by this point, Richards, a past master of Table Mountain Lodge No. 124, knew the drill. He called the fire department to report the smoke and was told that crews were on their way. Just to be on the safe side, he and his wife Becky drove down the block to scout the fire's location. It was too close for comfort, so they returned home and began packing. I managed to hook up my trailer and got the dog, Richards remembers. She got the car and we grabbed a few clothes and our computers and got the heck out of there. By the time they got the call to evacuate what was rapidly turning into the campfire, which would go on to incinerate 153,000 acres, destroy 18,000 buildings and claim 85 lives, making it the deadliest fire in California history, giant smoldering embers were already showering the front yard. On his way out of town, Richards did what many Masons in an emergency do. He called a Mason. In this case, it was past Lodge Master Bill Spencer. Spencer lived in Paradise until 2008, when that year's fires came within 150 yards of his home. Since then, he'd moved to Chico. Still close friends, Richards and Spencer had plans to drive a group of children to the Shriners Hospital in Sacramento that week. So when Richards called to warn Spencer about the approaching fire, he said that the trip to the hospital would have to be canceled. Spencer didn't miss a beat. He invited Richards and his wife to come stay with him as long as they needed. Grateful, the Richardses headed east to Chico. By the time they reached the Paradise City limits, their house had burned to the ground. Relief in Action While the coronavirus outbreak has spurred a nearly unprecedented outpouring of Masonic relief, the megafires that have become an almost yearly occurrence in California have recently given Masons a chance to show their commitment to the cause. In each instance, Lodge members have reached out to one another to offer help in any way they can. From the Thomas Fire, which claimed 23 lives near Santa Barbara in 2017, to the 2017 Tubbs Fire in Wine Country that claimed 22, and the Camp, Carr, and Mendocino Complex Flyers that blazed through Northern California in 2018, Masons have lent a hand in ways big and small to help their brothers in an urgent time of need. It gives you a little bit of grounding, Richard says, choking up at the memory. With no home to return to and nothing but a few possessions they'd hastily packed, he and his wife ended up staying with Spencer for three months. Examples like theirs demonstrate the unique position Masons are in to offer relief in the wake of a disaster. 
that happens both at the local level, where lodge members can check in on one another, and at the state and national levels where resources can be activated and directed to those in urgent need. Physically and institutionally, Masons are expected and eager to step in and help. It's part of our culture, says past Grandmaster Bruce Galloway, whose home lodge, Reading Trinity No. 27, had its own recent brush with wildfire. It's our obligation to assist all distressed Brother Masons. Richards recalls the state of shock he and so many others in Paradise experienced in the first few days of the campfire. Nevertheless, the lodge kicked into gear. Members reached out over the phone, by text message, and on Facebook. Long email threads attested to members' whereabouts and safety, particularly elder members and widows. Over the course of the week, we checked in about where everybody ended up, says Brian Granfield, the lodge secretary. Fortunately, no members' lives were lost, but Granfield estimates that 95% suffered material losses. As news of the disaster spread, donations and calls of support poured in from lodges near and far, with people offering spare bedrooms, connections to rentals, storage areas, meeting space, or just a sympathetic ear. Those offers weren't confined just to Paradise. Earlier in 2018, as the car fire tore through Shasta and Trinity counties, members of lodges there sprang into action. Matt Larson, then a junior warden at Western Star No. 2 in Shasta, recalls getting a call from Uriah McBroom, then master of Reading 254. He asked, what do you need? How can I help? Larson says before long, McBroom had shown up with his trailer, and together he and Larson emptied the Shasta Lodge of its valuables. Their next stop was Secretary Chris Wardlow's home, a mile away in the direct path of the blaze, to help him load up his own possessions. Ultimately, Wardlow was one of the three Lodge members who lost their homes. He wound up staying with past master Richard Montgomery for several weeks. Instances like that of Masons helping Masons have played out across the state, attesting to the Lodge's status as an effective, if informal, support network. In the days after the car fire broke out, Larson says that he studied his Lodge's member directory, typing addresses into an online map to determine who lived in the fire zone, then directed them to service providers. During the Thomas Fire and the subsequent mudslides in Santa Barbara County in 2017, which burned 281,000 acres and destroyed more than 1,000 buildings, donations poured into local lodges. We literally had supplies piled to the ceiling on all three floors of the lodge, says past Grandmaster and Kings David No. 209 member Rush Charbonia. It was overwhelming. We had people coming in all day long and walking out with bags of stuff to take to the fairgrounds or to friends. Masons provide relief at higher organizational levels as well. Statewide, Masonic Outreach Services, run through the Masonic Homes of California, exist to offer those in need access to services and financial support. While the Grand Lodge Office in San Francisco can direct fundraising dollars and coordinate recovery efforts, after the campfire, Masons from around the state funneled donations to the California Masonic Foundation, which was able, through Masonic Outreach Services, to disperse much-needed funds to affected lodges. Nationally, groups like the Masonic Service Association of North America have performed similar tasks. In 2018, following the campfire, MSANA put out an appeal for relief to members across the country, leading to more than $200,000 in donations for affected Masons. It made similar nationwide appeals in 2004 in the wake of a series of wildfires around the state, and in 1993 and 1989 following the Northridge and Loma Prieta earthquakes, respectively. After the campfire, Richards, Spencer, and fellow Lodge member Charlie Haggerty were tasked with distributing donated funds to members of Table Mountain Lodge. They designed a survey to assess people's losses and insurance coverage, 
which help them split the money equitably. Masons are altruistic, Richard says, and they don't like asking for help. For members who'd lost everything, often the seemingly smallest forms of relief were the most meaningful. Richards recalls members of Nevada No. 13 donated a trailer packed with supplies to the lodge. Elderly residents and staff at the Masonic Homes loaded trucks with goods. Masonic-affiliated groups like the Seekers of Light Motorcycle Association organized group rides to deliver materials, and countless lodges offered to help replace the aprons, Bibles, and other Masonic paraphernalia lost in the fire. A Legacy Born in Fire Providing aid to those in need is a core tenet of masonry, and one that California Masons have, historically, been all too familiar with. And it isn't only wildfire. In the state's early days, building fires were practically ubiquitous. In the most famous example of Masonic fire relief, Masons in 1871 banded together after the Great Chicago Fire to donate more than $100,000 to the city, so much that the Grand Lodge of Illinois sent refunds to many states, including $1,874 to California. Thirty-five years later, that favor was repaid after the 1906 earthquake and fire leveled San Francisco and destroyed its Masonic temple. Almost overnight, more than $315,000, upwards of $9 million in today's dollars, was raised by Masonic jurisdictions across the country for San Francisco, and hundreds of Masons spent weeks providing direct relief in the broken city. As the campfire raged and members feared for the fate of their homes, Table Mountain Lodge also hung in the balance. About a week into the fire, word broke that the lodge had been saved by an unknown Good Samaritan. As Spencer heard it, somebody hollered at the strike team during the fire, Whatever you do, save the lodge. One group of firefighters stayed behind and made sure the lodge survived. They were the ones that gave us the framework to recover, Spencer says, and for that, I'm very grateful. For Richards, the lodge's survival was a beacon in an otherwise dark time. Not only did he lose his house, it had recently been remodeled, but not reinsured to its new value, He also lost the tools for his woodworking business, including some he'd inherited from his grandfather. Although the Lodge Hall survived, it would be a long time before it was usable again. In December 2018, members gathered at Chico Leland Stanford No. 111 for their first meeting back. It was emotional. The damage from the fire goes well beyond having all your stuff burned, Richard says. The loss of community is the thing most people are feeling. The challenges to the Lodge were immediately clear. Members had scattered to the wind, some temporarily, others permanently. When 50% of your membership goes away overnight, how do you keep going? Granfield asks. Members determined that no matter what, they wouldn't consolidate. Table Mountain Lodge is not going to fold because of a fire, Granfield says. We're going to keep it going, stay strong together. Carrying on came with changes. For the next year, the lodge met in Chico, which itself had only narrowly escaped disaster. They moved meetings from Monday night to Saturday afternoon so more members could participate. Some who hadn't been active for years stepped into leadership roles. Others forced to move away continued paying dues, recognizing how important the connections formed in Lodge remained. That display of brotherhood had an effect on those who witnessed it. It's just now sinking in, says Brad Marr, Lodge Master of Chico Leland Stanford No. 111. At the time, it was just chaos. There wasn't even a thought about helping, it's just what do you do? But now, as we go to other lodges for degrees, we run into people from Paradise, and they'll tell me how much it meant to them to be able to keep on meeting. Marr is still moved by the generosity he saw in the wake of the fire. At one point, the offers of assistance were so overwhelming that he instructed Lodge Secretary Sidney Crane to make a spreadsheet so members could connect with would-be donors. One mason offered to fly a National Guard helicopter full of supplies to them. All around him, Marr says, he felt the Masonic spirit of relief permeating the community. The whole town, 
everyone was giving. I've never seen anything like it. It was like everyone was a Mason. Up from the ashes. Eventually, Lodge members turned their attention to their own building. Spencer, who had spearheaded a solar project at the Lodge before the fire, offered to lead the circa 1936 Hall's rehabilitation. He coordinated between Grand Lodge and the insurance company, wrangled permits, communicated with contractors, and supervised cleanup of water damage. Knowing there wasn't much he could do to help the Lodge recover its membership, he focused on rebuilding. Table Mountain No. 124 reopened in September 2019 after months of delays caused by testing of the municipal water system. The first meeting back was a celebratory affair, and a degree ceremony followed in December, with sideliners joining in from as far away as Sacramento. A lot of people came up, people who didn't even know our candidates, says Harwood Woody Nelson, the Lodge's current master. I guess that's part of Masonic history. We're here to help one another. Bill Richards, who at the time of the fire was the district inspector for Paradise, Gridley, Oroville, and Forbestown, has yet to return. The loss pushed him and his wife to bump up their retirement plans. They bought a mobile home and have been driving across the country, visiting friends and family, and of course, other lodges. I receive a great reception everywhere I go, he says. He still pays dues at Table Mountain number 124 and plans to come home for its rededication, which has been scheduled for July. And a new date has not yet been sent because of uh, the COVID. The brothers of Table Mountain don't want to let the campfire define them, but know that it has undeniably changed them. I think we're more together now, Nelson reflects. We still have our own lives, but part of that individual life is the lodge and the community. Just as they were hosted in Chico, they're trying to be a home away from home for other local organizations in need. We want to make sure that the community itself is helped out by our lodge, Nelson says. We know we are very, very fortunate. And this next article takes us from 1918 to 1850. Disease, Quarantine, and Masonic Relief, 170 years ago. During the Sacramento cholera outbreak of 1850, Masons took the reins of a public health emergency by Ian A. Stewart. For Californians, the weeks following the state's March 19th shelter-in-place order felt not only incredible, but historic. Within the fraternity, there's been a resounding call to arms for members to live up to their obligation by reaching out to the vulnerable among us and providing whatever relief they can. As unprecedented as the moment has felt, the history of Masonry in California recounts an alarmingly similar circumstance more than a century and a half earlier in which Masons responded to a public health emergency. That was during the Great Cholera Outbreak of 1850 in Sacramento and San Francisco, one of the most rapid and grisly contagions ever, a horrific episode in state history, but one in which California's early Masons left an indelible mark through their commitment to relief. Nearly 50 years later, their spirit would lead to the construction of the Masonic Widows and Orphans Home, later to become the Masonic Homes of California. In the fall of 1850, however, such institutional supports were few and far between. It was October of that year when the first traces of what would be known as the Asiatic Cholera were first spotted in patients along the waterfront of San Francisco, no doubt brought to the state by ship. Among the 40,000 would-be gold miners flooding the city each year, on October 11, 1850, the first reports of cholera-related deaths were made in San Francisco. By October 14th, just three days later, the disease was reported in Sacramento. It would have been hard to miss. Cholera is among the most miserable diseases on Earth, with symptoms including diarrhea, vomiting, and dehydration. Most cases ended in death within 36 hours. Like a match to kindling, the disease erupted in Sacramento, a town still reeling from a catastrophic flood earlier that year, 
a fire, and a violent squatters riot. According to Mitchell Roth, a professor of history at Sam Houston State University, writing in the Pacific Historical Review in 1997, within a week of the outbreak, 29 people were reported dead from the plague. The city council, acting with surprising if misguided force, ordered the mandatory burning of all garbage under penalty of a crippling $500 fine for any resident or business out of compliance, hoping to eradicate the squalid grime believed to carry the disease. The order backfired, further tainting the water supply. Citizens were then ordered off the streets and into quarantine. The actions did little to stop the spread of the disease, however. The following week, another 44 were reported dead, with the true number almost certainly higher, as a lack of testing meant many went undiagnosed. Almost overnight, Sacramento's cemeteries appeared to be newly plowed fields, wrote a local businessman in his memoir, Life Sketch of Pierre Barlow Cornwall. Business ground to a halt, and the city streets were deserted. From October 27th to 31st, some 249 died of cholera, including 58 on Halloween Day. Reports of cholera death didn't slow until the third week of November, five weeks after the first case was detected, and not because of medical intervention. Rather, it's been said, the disease slowed for the simple fact that there were so few people left to contract it. Among a city of 8,000, half the town either died or fled. Later reports, accounting for all funeral and death records, estimate that between 800 and 1,000 people died of cholera in Sacramento in the space of about five weeks. Essentially, 17% of the city died in just over a month. San Francisco, mostly on account of its more transient population, was spared from the brunt of the outbreak. Still estimates peg its death toll at between 250 and 600 in a town of 10,000, or approximately 5%. San Jose lost 10% of its population. Remarkably, the outbreak served as little more than a speed bump in the histories of the Bay Area and Sacramento. By December 1850, both regions were mostly back to normal, with business picking up and the hunt for gold proving as alluring as ever. Rather, the true legacy of the outbreak is that it served as a catalyst for the formation of a more robust system of public health in California, an effort that Masons helped lead. Prior to the fall of 1850, medicine was practiced more or less ad hoc in California. San Francisco had just one public hospital, Sacramento had two. Physicians largely treated customers privately at extraordinary rates of up to $16 a day, or not at all. The gold rush coincided with a period of broad skepticism toward the medical profession. One of the first and most important changes to that arrangement came in December 1849 with the opening of the jointly run Oddfellows and Mason's Hospital at Fort Sutter, soon to become overrun with cholera patients. Built at a cost of $15,000, the hospital was run by General Albert Maver Wynn. Wynn was both a member of Tehama Masonic Lodge No. 3 in Sacramento and ranking officer of the Oddfellows in California. Two physicians, John Frederick Morse and Jacob D.B. Stillman, both of Tehama No. 3, saw to the sick and distressed free of charge. Patients who died at the hospital had their information sent to their home lodges in other states one of the only reliable methods of such information reaching relatives back east. Along with the other local medical heroes like Dr. Volney Spalning, Mayor James Hardenberg, and Dr. Gregory Phelan, Morris and Stillman were largely responsible for remaking medical care in Sacramento. The hospital was the primary symbol of Masonic relief in Sacramento during the outbreak, but it wasn't the only source. In fact, the three pioneering lodges of the city, Tehama No. 3, Jennings No. 4, and Sutter No. 6, dispatched funds in 1850 to the indigent at a rate that's almost unthinkable today. Together, the three lodges, although already in the red thanks to the construction of new lodge halls, 
took on a relief debt totaling more than $31,000 in direct funds and hospital costs during the outbreak. For context, the entire city of Sacramento had only 69 Masons that year of about 300 statewide, meaning that on average, each Sacramento Mason shouldered something like $449 in relief debt, equivalent to almost $15,000 per person in today's dollars. That staggering commitment actually sunk Jennings Lodge No. 4, which disbanded in 1853. When, as city councilman and former mayor of Sacramento, president of the Masons and Oddfellows Association and leader of the Masonic Relief Movement, was perhaps first among equals with regard to charity. Exhausting the contents of his own purse and putting himself in severe financial straits in a heroic effort to relieve the suffering, according to John Witzel's 100 Years of Freemasonry in California. Four years after the outbreak, the Oddfellows and the Masons issued a joint report recommending that Wynn be personally reimbursed for costs he incurred during the outbreak, totaling 19140 Ultimately, the city of Sacramento issued him $1,825. Several years later, Wynn moved to San Francisco and founded the Order of the Native Sons of the Golden West. Wynn wasn't alone among Masonic champions of the outbreak. Dr. John F. Morse, as head of the Oddfellows and Masons Hospital at Fort Sutter, was said to have tended to the dying by the hundreds during the outbreak and distinguished himself as one of the early California's most celebrated physicians. After the cholera outbreak, Morse, already the founding editor of the Sacramento Union newspaper and credited as one of the town's first historians, organized the first ever Sacramento Medical Society and later the California State Medical Society, serving as its first chairman. Additionally, he became the first medical officer of the state of California, serving as editor of the California State Medical Journal. In 1872, having relocated to San Francisco, he was elected president of the San Francisco Medical Society. Morse's partner at the Mason's Hospital, Dr. Jacob Stillman, was a Renaissance man of sorts. He was a past president of the Sacramento Society of California Pioneers and a past grandmaster of the Oddfellows, as well as a high-ranking member of the Royal Archmasons, the Knights Templar, and the Knights of Malta. He later affiliated with Oriental Lodge in San Francisco, according to Witzel. Others were also influential in combating the plague. In 1849, Dr. Berryman Bryant of Keith Lodge No. 187 in Gilroy established a home for the sick on L Street in Sacramento, one of the city's first private hospitals, which aided scores of choleric patients. John Bigler, originally of Connecticut Lodge No. 74, among California's first lodges prior to formation of a Grand Lodge, and later of Tahama No. 3, was at the time of the outbreak Speaker of the State Assembly. He would go on to serve as the third governor of California, though in 1850, according to Witzel, he too was described as working tirelessly, walking among the sick and dying, serving wherever he could when the stench was so bad he had to keep a lump of camphor at his nose. And finally, there was Dr. John Townsend, a larger-than-life figure in early California history. Townsend had been among the original party to drive wagons across the Sierra Nevada and became the first resident physician of San Francisco, where Townsend Street is named in his honor. At the time of the outbreak, Townsend was the first junior warden of San Jose Lodge No. 10, where he treated the sick right up until both he and his wife succumbed to the disease on December 8, 1850. Though largely forgotten by history, the Sacramento and San Francisco cholera outbreak of 1850 stands out in the history of California masonry as a shining example of the fraternity's commitment to fulfilling its obligation of relief. We know, beyond doubt, that they stood true in the hour of need, wrote Witzel in his Hundred Years of Freemasonry in California, summing up the enormous cost and effort in the following quote. They nursed and obtained medical care for the sick. They soothed the dying and wrote letters to the nearest of kin. 
They buried their dead in decent places with suitable honors and dignity. This is certain. No sick, destitute, and suffering brother has been permitted to suffer or die in their midst uncared for. The noble generosity and disinterestedness with which few masons in one of our new cities have contributed so largely to the wants of the brethren coming upon them from all parts of the civilized world has afforded a brilliant illustration to the world of the excellence and strength of our principles and has been most effective in commending our order to the respect of those who are not of us. And we're going to close out this episode with an article called The Helpline. So this is written by Laura Bennis. Long before COVID-19, an emergency Masonic task force was pressed into heroic action. On the day in 2018 that the worst fire in a century of United States history broke out, a second fire erupted almost 500 miles away. At one end of the state, a fire that would go on to burn for two weeks, claim 85 lives, and ultimately scar an area the size of Chicago. At the other, a blaze propelled by the Santa Ana winds was pushing across the Ventura Freeway into Malibu. At the Masonic Outreach Services headquarters in Covina, there was a looming sense of dread. I remember California being on fire like never before, says Helen D. Ramirez, a data analyst there. There was no news of containment, and the winds were picking up. Most of the world could do little but watch in horror, including, at least at first, Ramirez. Then she received an urgent message from Sabrina Montez, Executive Director of Masonic Outreach Services. Below a list of immediate instructions was a simple message, Call the Widows. Montez wrote, Make sure they're okay. In any aid or relief organization, there are those on the front lines who work directly with people receiving assistance, and then there are team members operating behind the scenes, making that work possible. In times of crises, those distinctions are often cast aside, and the call for all hands on deck gets put to the test. For Masonic Outreach Services, November 2018 was one of those times. When Ramirez received Montez's email, she immediately reached out to her colleagues, both in the Covina office and in Union City, where administrative staff from MOS and its parent organization, the Masonic Homes of California, are located. Anyone and everyone with access to a phone needed to drop everything and start dialing, she explained. Within a few hours, a special task force of 12 had formed to flood the fire zones with calls to elderly members and widows. The team included staff of all stripes, executives, administrative assistants, interns, a social services assistant, an office manager, and Ramirez herself, whose usual role as a data analyst deals with numbers, not people. The task force divvied up the list of widows living in and around Butte County and started calling. They asked if the widows needed help accessing emergency disaster resources, formulating an evacuation plan, or contacting family members. They provided Masonic Assistance's phone number and made referrals to other organizations. They didn't stop until they'd called every Masonic widow. From 9.30 a.m. to 2.21 p.m., the task force made 619 phone calls. On that day, we showed how quickly we can come together as a team, even across different departments in different parts of the state, Ramirez says. It was amazing. It was truly one team, one dream. The work wasn't over, though. Two days later, the task force reassembled as the Woolsey fire kept spreading and threatening parts of Los Angeles and Ventura counties to reach out to Masonic widows there. All told, between the camp and Woolsey fires, the group made 753 phone calls, carefully noting every outcome. Between Masonic assistance services and local resources, the task force ensured everyone got the support they needed. It felt really good to hear from the widows that they were safe and that they appreciated us calling to check on them, says Ron Schumalini who normally serves as an executive assistant within the Masonic Homes, but that week was pressed into emergency outreach. 
It's a modern chapter in a story as old as the fraternity. In every crisis or natural disaster since the cholera epidemic of 1850, the fraternity has rallied, individually, as lodges, and through Masonic assistance, to be there for its members' families. California Masonry has a long history of providing relief during times of emergency and disasters, Montez says. Today it's no different. For Ramirez and others, their experience on the task force made this personal. As a data analyst, I'm one of the few staff in my department who doesn't usually work with clients directly, she says. Being part of the outreach made me proud to work here. To be in a position to help gave me a sense of purpose. Mike McComas, an administrative assistant from the Masonic Homes, agrees. Helping others when they're unable to help themselves is what drew me to join the Masonic family in the first place. And that ends our episode for this round. So hope you enjoyed it. Hope you learned a little bit more about what Masons do. And uh, this particular episode and the last one was focused on Masons in California. But I guarantee you, you will hear stories similar in every state, every country, anywhere there's a Mason. Peace and thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.